Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. How do you deal with someone if they've never been in for a cocktail and somebody brand new is coming in and they don't really know what they like or anything? How do you, do you have any advice for someone in that situation? I was going to say mock them openly. Um, I, the, the funny thing is, is that we've had through here, like I have some great memories in this room because this, this room really, for me, changed the the way I saw cocktails. We've had 19-year-old kids come in here for their first legal drink and order a Zazerac. And you're like, well, but you should be at the Strath having like some sort of sugary, sweet, lychee, peachy, crappy thing. Um, I, I think the thing is, is understanding like how people have grown up and where their heads at. It's like people say, I don't like gin. I'm like, well, you just had a bad experience with gin. Like you just having a good gin, like gin in a cocktail, especially a shaken, like served up cocktail, like an aviation white lady and stuff. The gin is a drying element. It's not a, a flavor element per se. Like you can still taste the gin, but like if you made it with vodka, it'd be too sweet. It'd be boring. With gin, it gives you complexity and, and dryness. You don't actually hit this like massive juniper bomb or you just taste tanqueray. And like you, you don't like gin because you had a bad experience. But same thing with tequila, same thing with whiskey, all these sort of things. So again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like confidence building and building that confidence up in someone and having them trust you that anything you offered them to offer to them is going to be good. And also as a bartender, you have to have hum- humility in the fact that you may not make a drink that someone likes and you have to comp it and you're not going to, again, not going to keep everybody happy. So when people say, I don't like gin, can I swap out this product with gin? I'm like, okay, cool. I can do that for you. But how about I just make you a gin version? If you don't like it, I'll comp it. We'll make a vodka cocktail. You'll be happy with it, but just try it. And they're like, okay, I'm, I'm so against people like subbing out items just because they think they don't like it. Like there's, there's a reason why the the person making the thing put it in there. Yes. And unless there's like a dietary reason that you can't eat something, I'm kind of like, because I used to do this. I used to like, hey, can you take that out of my dish? Yeah. And I'm like, well, now you're not getting the intended of, it's not, it's not what it was intended to be. Yeah. And I think that's the hard thing sometimes like, oh, I want to modify the dish, but then I don't like the dish when it comes out. Exactly. And then, and then it leads to po- a possible bad review. Yeah. Exactly. And so like for here, we used to do the Clover Club, which was like always the the most popular, like entry level, easy, like two ounces of gin, raspberry syrup, lemon juice, egg whites, shake it. It's fluffy. It's raspberry. It's gin. And people would be like, oh, I want vodka. And I'm like, yeah, but if you have vodka, it's going to be too sweet. The gin dries out the balances out the raspberry. And sometimes I would, I would just keep gin in there. And I would shake it and I'd strain it and I'd send it out. And then a couple of sips in, I'm like, oh, so what do you think? Oh, this is the best drink I've ever had. I was like, just so you know, I made it with gin. And like, oh, I never knew gin could taste like this. And obviously sometimes that backfires and it goes back to that sort of like bullshit bartender ego. But like you sort of sometimes have to push people. It's like a little bird on the ledge. Like it may not want to fly, but then it, like you push it off the ledge and it'll, it'll fly. But I think that's the thing is like you, you got to put, find this happy medium of like, oh, you don't like gin cocktails. You don't like what we have on the menu. That's great. Like for us here, we have our house vodka cocktail, which is one of George's who was a long time server here, which was just vodka, lychee liqueur, peach, peach liqueur, lemon juice, shake and strained, super simple, flavorful as hell. 
And for the people you don't want to have a like a a fight with or like a it's a busy night and you're just like, you know what, you like vodka cocktails, I'll make you a great vodka cocktail. So making them something great that they have. But then when it's a quiet night, like you can go, okay, well, like, let's try this out. And they're like, oh, okay, I, I dig that. I can I can feel you on that one. And then they go to aviations. Well, last words. And then they, they start really exploring where gin can take them. Brambles. We have a great bramble variation on the menu right now. And they're like, oh, my God, this is fantastic, which is – it's actually been a huge sell, which I wasn't expecting. But so I think it's just – it's a cultural, societal thing about how taste change as it goes through. And you just got to play that edge at all times and sort of like – push certain people that are willing to get pushed that way over the edge. Do you have any um, really cool stories about how a drink came to be like a cocktail that you came up with, like a pretty wild story that went into that, that <laughs> becoming a thing. Um, so the Mayo flame, Mayo flame is a very, a very notoriously well-known cocktail here. I think it was made for something close to five years after I left. So like, off menu, never. It wasn't on the menu after I left. It was a cold cocktail, which is a, which is a, a pleasant surprise. So it's a tequila, a ginger honey shrub, um, a green tea and serrano chili amaro, and grapefruit juice. And I, I it was, I was exploring shrub. It wasn't really known as shrubs before, mm. like when I was doing it, it was known as gastriques. So I was, I was exploring gastriques with the chef one night, and it was for a cocktail competition in Vancouver, and. Um, so I, I was playing with ginger honey. I was like, this is perfect. This is great. Um, and I think that actually came out of the reason why it's called Mayowell flame is that we did the homage cocktail Friday with Mayowell in New York. It's closed now, but we did a homage cocktail Friday. One of their prep ingredients was a ginger honey shrub or ginger honey grass streak. And I was sort of playing around with this ingredient. I'm like, I've still got some of this left. So let's play around with this. And I was like, Oh, green tea, serrano chili. This is really good. Obviously tequila works really well. Cause it's Mayowell, the, the goddess of agave. Let's throw some grapefruit juice in this shape. And I went over to Vancouver for this cocktail competition and it was just a gong show. Like the judges were just jokes. Um, like Solomon came over with me to compete as well. And his cocktail was hot. It's a hot cocktail. And the judges wrote down like, I don't think this cocktail should be hot. It should have used a Reposado instead of Blanco. And so they weren't judging the cocktail on what the cocktail was they were judging on how they would do it oh, which is like the that's problematic which is the biggest faux pas of like cocktail judging it happens a lot still but like and mine was <laughs> i remember mine i was second last solomon solomon was last i was second last and they didn't like my garnish so i, I did a big grapefruit peel over an ice globe so i transported ice like ice globes from victoria on the ferry in an ice box for a cocktail competition, and they they judged me down. And I'd be this grapefruit peel that I would cu- I'd cut into a, a flame. Okay. And sit on the edge. And like, garnish is a joke. Like, these are the sort of comments on the, on the sheet. I'm like, you know what? And it was around the time that I was sort of really c- trying to push this uh, hypothesis that cocktail competition cocktails weren't doable in bars. Like, a lot of these guys would go, like, insane like a uh, jafard pear like paul william has a pear in the bottle so this guy cracked like five bottles to get the pear out and made a puree out of it i'm like well you can't put that on the menu how you, you're not going to crack five bottles of jafard paul william every week to make a cocktail like this is ridiculous this your cocktail competition cocktail should be able to be put on the menu 
And that's just purely from a branding point of view. Like these brands put up big money for these competitions. They send you to Mexico. They do all this stuff. They expect a little bit of ROI post-competition in your bar doing these cocktails. And I, I had this like, sort of hypothesis in my head. And plus, if you win and it's a drink that you actually can do, then you can say this one, this. Exactly. And a lot of the times you can't. Yeah. And so I was like, screw it. I came back and I was like, I'm going to put the mayo flame on the menu. And it became like a massive seller at Clive's. It's like, like I said, five years after I left to the point that there was still prep for 2019 in the fridge when I came in. Ginger honey shrub. And- How did that make you feel when you saw that? Oh, I always love it. Like a cocktail as complex as that, still being a core cocktail yeah. is like a dream come true. And off menu. And off menu. Like a core cocktail off menu, still getting made, mental. And so that sort of proved my hypothesis that just because your cocktail doesn't win a cocktail competition doesn't mean it's not good. And judging is so subjective. The same judges will judge the same cocktail differently the very next day based on the food they ate in the morning, the coffee they had, did they have a fight with the girlfriend or the boyfriend at the time? Like what sort of mind state are they in? They hung over and have like the the taste of cat's ass in their mouth, like all these things. And so the male or flame sort of proved my hypothesis that just because a cocktail doesn't win a competition actually comes second last out of like 14 competitors. Yeah. That it's not successful. And it, it literally made like Clive's Drunk Uncle's another one. Drunk Uncle's a very similar cocktail. Like it's a cocktail I did in 2019. It's a it's a simple Boulevardier Negroni riff. It's Isla whiskey, um, China Martini Bianco, grapefruit twist. And I'm like, sweet, this is great. Uh I had it on the menu for a long time. It got put into a Gary Reagan book, which I'm always thankful for Gaz for that. But when I got hired back here to take over, a kid in Sao Paulo in Brazil posted on his Instagram a picture of his drunk uncle, all in Portuguese except for my tag. <laughs> it said, Achron Sul. And I'm like, shit. Okay, well, maybe. The, and, the, and this is a drink that's 10 years old. And I'm like, well, I'm drunk uncle's on the menu now. Like, it's it's come full circle. And like, if the drunk uncle's still getting, like, representation and brazil yeah and in europe i'm like okay maybe i can bring it back on the menu and it still sells like hotcakes here that's incredible but nothing like the mail flame the mail flame is a beast unto itself to the point that is like so basically everyone that comes here should order that um once i get the prep redone i haven't got the prep done i i, t- I took it off it may come back next oh, summer okay but like they've they put two cocktails on the menu one was called the mail killer which was is that the replacement was was supposed to be the replacement and it still didn't cut it okay and so they did the mayor killer trying to get rid of this like the mayor flame calls and, and then the mayor will come back <laughs> and the mayor will come back so it was, it was insane do you have a favorite aspect of hospitality i think it's because every day is different like i know that's a really cliche cheesy freaking thing to say but i think the thing is is that you you wake up every morning and you, for me, especially, I think you're a little bit the same as like, you're a hardcore planner. Like I plan every, like the reason why I can achieve everything is I plan every 15 minutes of every single, like my whole day. Um, I think to, to sort of grind, like, so when you step back, do you, do you feel like you do a lot of stuff or do you feel like you're like, you're not doing enough? Like there should be, you, you should have room for optimization to do more. A bit of both. Okay. So 
a bit of a bit of both. So the the reason why I think a bit of both because I I always want to push myself to do more. Always, yeah. it's it's just the nature of my beast, and I don't know. I think it comes from my father, um, my dad. Um, he couldn't read when he was tw- like twenty one, so he was in a lot of trouble in high school. He's from London in the UK. So like skinhead, Doc Martens, the whole shebang. Um, when 16, he was told he was either going to go to jail or the military. Went to the military, kill, obviously killed. I shouldn't say kill, but as a, as a term, because that's a little bit too much. But um, but then when he came, he, he has a really high IQ, but he couldn't read and write. He bounced through high school, like left, right, center, juvenile delinquent my mum taught him how to read and write when he was 21 22 um ridiculously smart man like you're talking about math or name the seven c's or do this like an impressive gentleman like he and he was just a truck driver after he got out of the navy he was just a truck driver but he never got a speeding he never got any tickets parking or speeding or nothing um i've seen him spend an hour trying to back up the trailer exactly to the point that he wants it to be um, so when he started becoming a, a business person, what I started working in when I was in high school, it was this constant drive of like, I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning. I would go load a truck full of sod or turf to be delivered that day. I would wash my arms and legs off in the, in the car on like just a bottle of water, get in the school uniform, go to school from 9am to 3am, hop back in the car, get back into my work clothes and then go work from three to 10. And that was my day, day in, day out, seven days a week. At what age? From 13 to 17. Wow. So it was this constant drive. My dad always said, regardless of what you do, he's like, I don't care if you're a ditch digger, a garbage man, whatever, just be the best you possibly be at it. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of drives me. But my mom always used to say, regardless of how good you are, there's always someone out there better than you. And so- I think those are good. Like (laughs) the fact you got both of those pieces of advice are important, but that's great. It's this sort of polar opposite pulling effect that I, I always want to be the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. And so I always think that I'll like, oh, I didn't do enough today or I didn't do enough. And then I update my resume for any reason, like whether it be to put on LinkedIn or anything. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's only been seven years since I left Little Jumbo. Well, actually six years since I left Little Jumbo, literally to almost the month. I'm like, all the stuff that I've done in six years? I'm like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. I've done multiple seminars all over the world. I've spoken at, at big trade shows. I've won cocktail competitions. I've done national finals. I've opened 13 venues. And then I'm like, oh, okay, well, I have done enough. But then I still go, okay, well, I haven't really. So I think with hospitality, I think, especially being back here, it's, it's kind of a breath of fresh air for me and it invigorates me that while my whole week is really, really planned, I know that when I step in here at three o'clock on a Friday, when I'm about to start my shift or two thirty on a Friday, when I'm about to start my shift from that point on, nothing is planned. Nothing is, everything is intangible. Everything is pivot and move forward, pivot and move forward. There's a beauty to that. And it is, it's, it's, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like a, a ballet or a, a really good football game. You know, like you, you sit in the locker room and you're like, the X's and the O's and the movements and all that sort of stuff. But then when you get on the field, everything can change. And I think that a little bit has revitalized me over the last couple of weeks is that while it's exhausting and tiring to do 120 hours a week, it's that everything's planned, but then three o'clock on Friday, absolutely everything I can plan is done. And from that point on, I'm at the will of 
how many people we have come in, kegs blowing. So is that is that time off in a way, almost on some level? <laughs> I think I think there's always a purity for me for bartending. Yeah, it, it's not robotic in a bad way, but it's so set subconscious. Now, like me pouring, me stirring, me shaking and stirring is just a movement that my body just gets into and jigs. And it is like my brain might be still firing, but my whole body just takes over. Like it's funny because a couple of the guys, I don't really eat on shift, but I never also never like have breaks to go to the washroom or anything on the shift. My body just shuts down to a point there. It's just like, hey, you've got a job to do for the next eight hours. Just get it done. Like there's no... There's no washroom breaks. There's no sitting down. You, you're you going to do eight to 10 hours on your feet and you're just going to, it just, it just takes over. Hmm. So it, there's, I think there's a purity for me in bartending. Like there's, there's always times, especially coming back here. I was like, oh, do I really want to go back to bartending? Like I've been working so hard lately to try and get away from the cocktail guy, sort of like, you're the cocktail guy sort of mentality. I was like, do I want to go back? But I'm like, but there's a really good home base to have. I can do a lot of cool stuff there. I can become a practitioner and show people what I do for social media marketing and stuff like that. I was like, but bartending. Which, which long-term, it's not going to happen. Like long-term, I'm going to have a team here once we go seven days and I won't work the bar very often. Maybe one shift a week, two shifts every two weeks sort of thing. Um, and how often are you here right now? I'm definitely here Friday, Saturdays every week. Okay. So, but then I come in and do menus for the guys and tomorrow night I'm supporting the guys because I'm short staff. So I'll, I'll work support for the guys tomorrow night. But there's, there's a certain level of just purity and doing what you like doing. You know, it's like a, I think it is like an athlete becoming like a, a GM of the sports team or something. Mm-hmm. There's just something about getting down on the, on the, on the field and throwing the ball or like taking a tackle or just playing around like that. I think th- there's a certain level of just, um, it's like meditation. Like there's no, there's no worrying about clients. There's no worrying about partners. There's no worrying about projects. It's just cocktails and. There's a little bit of labor and doing the financial side of things, but it's just cocktails and making great cocktails, making sure that garnish is on point, doing it as quickly and cleanly as possible, supporting your team, like building your team up and getting them excited and enthusiastic about it. So yeah, I think I think bartending as a whole, but I can I do I feel the same way when I serve. Like when I was general manager and I served, I it's just something I love going in the dish pit too. Like I love doing dishes. People think I'm mental, but like Yeah, you love the process straight up. There's nothing better than like just stepping off the floor, taking your tie off and doing dishes for an hour, hour and a half. And it's just this this beautiful place where you just do it like you're you have a goal, you have a a a job, you do it, you put in the dishwasher, you pull it out, the goal is there. It's quick gratification. It's just Mm -hmm. it is like a drug. (laughs) And what are you thinking about when you're doing dishes? Nothing. Okay. Like nothing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like planning something else or anything like that. I'm, I'm not thinking about anything. So is it almost like a meditation on some level? Yeah. Mm. I started off in the dish pit when I was a kid. So I started off in the dish. I never, I wasn't a bartender for about 12 to 18 months when I got in the industry. I started off doing dishes 6 a.m. on a, on a Saturday morning in a, in a restaurant, a buffet restaurant of all that. So there's just tons of dishes. And there's just some gratification about cleaning that dish pit out. Getting all those dishes done, more dishes come in. So it's another tackle job. So I think it's just it's just a short term gratification on applying that to long term gratification that I get now. Like patio took a month. 
There's a lot of steps to get to that patio. The patio was up. I came in early. I set it up, got the guys ready to go, and the gratification is there. I know. I love the fact you did that time-lapse video. <laughs> that day of setting up the whole, the whole thing being done. Yeah. I thought that was great. So, so you started off as a dishwasher. How did, how did you – did you just take it because it was a, a job? You were young or how did that all work, you getting into the industry? <laughs> So I think it was my 17th or 18th birthday on Christmas day. Um, my father and I had a massive falling out and I punched him. Oh, that's not good. And so he kicked me out of home. So I got kicked out of the home, like 500 bucks in my pocket, packed up all my stuff and drove me about an hour and a half into the, into the city. Cause I, lived, I grew up in the country and, uh, dropped me off at a friend, friend's house and, uh, Basically, let me fend, my, fend for myself. Lucky enough, I had good, good friends. I slept on the couch for a couple of weeks, started looking for jobs. Um, and with my landscaping background, I got a job as a handyman, junior handyman at a, a little, small, little three-star hotel off off a big park in, in uh, Brisbane. Mm. And so, I started being the junior handyman. So, mm. the, the main handyman would come in about 9 o'clock. I was supposed to be there at 7. I'd be like changing light bulbs and cleaning windows and helping the housekeeping staff take out linens and stuff like that. Never been in hospitality. My mother was a horrible cook. Like just the – it's a typical horrible like cook. Like family of six, all 18 months apart. So, five boys, one girl. There was like always three of us going through puberty. One was ending, one was starting, one was in the middle. And so the amount of food that my house would go through was just ridiculous. So mom would literally cook two, two or three kilos of potatoes and just mash them up in the pot, little uh, smidge of butter, no salt. We didn't have salt and pepper in the house. And literally just mash them up and on the, on the table. And so you scoop out like prison rules, elbows on the table. Um, so I'd never been exposed to restaurants being in a small town. My graduating high school class was like 62 people. Oh, wow. So small town, no restaurants anywhere for like 10, 15 kilometers. And so started working in this hotel and um, maintenance and housekeeping and all that sort of stuff as like a 17, 18 year old kid. And one night, one of the guys was like, hey, do you have black and whites? We're short staffed. I'm like, yeah, I have, I have my black and whites, but I wear to interviews and stuff. And they're like, cool. Go home, get them, come back for seven o'clock. So I came back and um, uh, bartended and served a wedding, and then that was pretty much it. That was the that was the bug. Like I started bartending upstairs in the bar in the restaurant and doing breakfast service outside the kitchen and and helping with that and really sort of delved in. I was yeah, I was super young then. I remember the first time someone asked me for a martini and it was like yeah. <laughs> I'm out and literally walked out the bar with my hands up and let the other bartender make the martini because I was just like, I don't even want to tackle the sucker. I don't know what a martini is. I have no idea. Then I started like really delving in. And so over a space- you knew at that point that it was something that you were were pretty passionate about? I think it was something that was outside the norm, like working in landscaping for two years, like you're eating McDonald's and drinking like two liter Cokes and 42 degree heat and- grinding out like yard after yard after yard and, and me and my brothers became very well known in the in the suburbs of being super fast sod like sod layers like most teams could do like 50 square meters an hour and we would get up to 75 to 100 square meters an hour so we were like wow. we could do a, a full size like suburban yard in a space before lunch basically and so um it was that hard grind and then I sort of saw hospitality as a sort of glamorous, like life change. And so I, I started delving into it and 
back then, like we're talking 1997, 98, there was no internet. Like there was no smartphones. Like if you wanted to learn about cocktails, there wasn't even bar courses. Like you would have to go and like go to bookstores and buy books and take them home and, and read them and write them. And so by, by the time I was 2021, I, I went for my first state title at a cocktail competition and won. And so I, I won a state title for a cocktail competition and I'll, I'll have to send some photos through because there are photos floating around of that, that photo shoot after I won that. And I was like 150 pounds and six foot two. Um, it was, I was very skinny, but, um, and then that sort of just fed it. And, and back in the day, I used to be really upset that I'd jump around from job to job. Um, but now looking back, like I literally would get a job as a bartender or a, a supervisor or a server or whatever. I would literally just suck that job dry of everything I could learn. And they'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to move on. And from 21 to 25, I, I worked number of places from nightclubs to silver service, serving like the premier of Queensland and all this sort of crazy stuff. And I would, I'd go from, silver service lunch service in a in a dining hall to a nightclub to finish up at the nightclub and going upstairs to the the cocktail bar and finish the cocktail bar off till four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. Um and then I got a job at a really good high end cocktail bar and that's when it really started like ticking with me. Um but I with everything that's gone on, I think I grew up here in Canada. More so when I came here when I was 26. And so that that was the big transformation. I don't think I'd be where I am in my career without coming to Canada, if that makes sense. And where sense. did you come to in Canada? Victoria. Oh, you did? Never lived anywhere else. And so why did you come to Victoria? A girl. Okay. Not my wife. <laughs> okay, well, it's, it's, uh, you're lucky, I guess, that you got led to Victoria because I think Victoria is amazing. I, it was. And that's the thing is like I fell in love with Victoria really hard. Like it, it reminded me a lot of Brisbane, but I came and I started exploring myself a lot uh, on a personal level. And I was 25, 26 when I came, like 26 when I came. Um, so I, f I fell in love with Victoria. I broke up with the girl very quickly afterwards, but I was like, oh, this has got something special about Victoria. And again, there was no cocktail scene. Like I came from being named one of the best bartenders in Australia before I left to being a nobody a nothing. And so I got into my wine. I worked at Moxie's not knowing what a franchise was um, at all. I didn't, we don't have franchises like Moxie's in Australia. We don't have cactus clubs or anything like that. Um, and then I started getting back in my cocktails when Solomon's open. And that's what sort of sparked it all back up. I was doing, I did a cocktail competition in New York. I had a magazine in New York for a little while there in the, in the 29s, 2010s as well. So I had a magazine that I was writing for in New York at that time too, which is all cocktail related. So it was like, I was living outside the culture here in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And then Solomon's open. And I'm like, oh, I've got a brethren. Like I got someone who I can actually like talk to. This is awesome. We can actually chat about cocktails. And I remember Solomon always loved this story too. But um, I remember the first night Solomon's opened, me and, the, me and Jill went down. Um, people always find it weird that I call her my wife or the wife, but it's a capital T and a capital W is for the, the, the wife. She's like, it's capitalized. Um, so me and Jill went down. We weren't married at the time. And I ordered a gimlet. And me and Solomon got into a Barney. Like a Barney. What's a, what's a Barney? 
a fight, like a, a verbal, like not like a big fight, but like a verbal altercation okay. on how to make a gimlet. I see. Because he was super old school. Like he, he was trying to do a certain style of cocktail. And I like my gimlets with roses, lime cordial. I'm ghetto when I'm like, I'm super ghetto with my gimlets. Um, and traditionally it would have been made with lime cordial. The lime cordials changed over the years. So roses was created to fight scurvy on British ships. It would have had a higher level of sulfuric acid or sulfur in it. So it would have been a bit punchier. Um, but you would be two ounces of gin. I think a lot of the times right then and there, everybody was going like sugar syrup and fresh lime juice. I'm like, I don't want that. I want my ghetto gimlet. And we had a big, like a big verbal, which me and Sol have had multiple verbal altercations over the years. Never that we like don't talk to each other afterwards, but we always have these fights that people walk away from whether it be ice dilution and size or how to make a simple syrup, all these things, we have these massive disagreements because we're both very passionate. So I ordered a gimlet and that was the the time that I was like, huh, Victoria is ready for this. You know, like I looked around and I saw people out of the cocktail started that year. Um, out of the cocktail started that year for the very first time. And I was like, huh, maybe this, maybe the, the last three years of me being in Victoria have sort of, Victoria's caught up. Vancouver was pretty behind as well, but caught up to where we were in, in Australia. And so that's when I started really getting back into like, okay, well, cocktails are going to be big in Victoria. It's coming. Well, it's like speaking about Brad at Olo when he had mm-hmm. Ula yep. and he had to re- redo it because they just, Victoria wasn't ready for that. And I, I think Victoria's always one of those cities that I, I love when people always post like, oh, there's nowhere to have good lunch in Victoria. I'm like, okay, you're open for lunch and then no one comes. 